I'm John. And I'm John. We're classically trained conductors who are also working theater music directors. Each week, we'll tell you a little bit about shows we enjoy and why you should check them out if you haven't yet. This is Musical Minutes with John and John. Hi, John. Hi, John. How are you doing? I'm doing great. You know, I'm just here in Winston-Salem, hanging out, enjoying the weather. It's finally starting to cool down, which is delightful. If I didn't have an asthmatic cat, I would have the windows open right now. But unfortunately, I have an asthmatic cat. I never knew that. That's so sad. She's a darling kitty. But uh, if we open the windows at all, she starts to wheeze. And it's just the saddest thing ever. (laughs) Okay. On that note... We are going to talk about the light in the Seussical. piazza this Wait, week. Wait, oh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> this week we are talking about the light in the piazza with music and lyrics by Adam Gettle, book by Craig Lucas, based on the novel of the same name by Elizabeth Spencer. The light in the piazza opened on April 18th, 2005 at the Vivian Beaumont Theater and played 504 performances before closing on July 2nd, 2006. The Light in the Piazza was directed by Bartlett Scher, with music direction by Ted Sperling, and musical staging by Jonathan Buttrell. The original cast included Victoria Clark as Margaret Johnson, Kelly O'Hara as Clara Johnson, Matthew Morrison as Fabrizio Naccarelli, Michael Burress as Giuseppe Naccarelli, Sarah Barry as Franca Naccarelli, and Mark Herlich as Signor Naccarelli. The Light in the Piazza was nominated for 11 Tony Awards and won six, including Best Original Score, Best Leading Actress for Victoria Clark, Best Orchestrations, Best Scenic, Costume, and Lighting Design. In the early morning of their first day in Florence, Margaret reads from her guidebook to Clara as the piazza around them is waking up and coming to life. A breeze carries Clara's hat off her head and across the square to where a young Italian man, Fabrizio, catches it midair and returns it to her. The two are instantly smitten. Margaret steers her daughter Clara away from the encounter, bringing her next to the Uffizi Gallery, where the reaching figures in the painting speak to Clara of her own yearnings. Fabrizio appears, hoping to arrange a time to meet with Clara, but once again, Margaret intervenes. Alone, Fabrizio sings in Italian his declaration of love at first sight for Clara, along with a heartfelt cry of fear that she could never love anyone as lost and without position as he is. Fabrizio begs his father and his brother, Giuseppe, to help him dress more presentably for Clara. Giuseppe attempts to teach Fabrizio some dance steps as well. At the Duomo, just hitting all the spots, Fabrizio once again catches up with Margaret and Clara, and this time Fabrizio's father, Signore Naccarelli, is able to help penetrate Margaret's resistance to any further involvement. They all agree to meet at sunset to take a walk and admire the view of the city from above the Ghezzale Michelangelo. Margaret and Clara are invited to have tea at the Naccarelli home. Giuseppe's wife, Franca, takes Clara on a tour of the apartment, and alone in a separate room, she warns Clara about how quickly love can sail in marriage. Though the Naccarellis are universally impressed with Clara, 
Margaret tries without success to share her deep reservations. When she looks in Fabrizio's eyes and sees the love there, she cannot bring herself to disappoint him as much as she feels she must. For there is something about Clara that none of these people know. Clara secretly makes plans to meet Fabrizio at midnight near the hotel. Margaret calls her husband Roy, who is back in the States. She tries to tell him what is happening with Clara and Fabrizio, but he is brusque and not very understanding, cutting short the conversation. Margaret, alone in her hotel room, reflects on the loneliness in her marriage. She checks in on Clara's room and finds that Clara is missing. On her way to meet Fabrizio, Clara becomes lost in the maze-like streets of Florence. She loses all poise and control, becoming hysterical and screaming like a child. Her mother takes her back to the hotel and, as Clara sleeps, reveals the source of her disquiet. When Clara was a young girl, she was kicked in the head by a Shetland pony, and the accident has caused her mental and emotional abilities to develop abnormally. Margaret feels that she must take Clara away from Florence at once, and she steps down into the lobby to have a drink. While she is away, Fabrizio comes to the room, distraught. He cannot find the right words to express his feelings, and Clara urges him to use any other means. Clara accepts Fabrizio's proposal of marriage, and the two are embracing, half undressed, as Margaret walks in on them. Act two opens with Margaret taking Clara to Rome to distract her and put an end to the affair. Back in Florence, the Naccarelli household is in complete chaos. As the family despairs, Signora Naccarelli translates in an aside. Fabrizio believes he has ruined everything with Clara. His father attempts to comfort him. And Giuseppe and Franca desire more detail about why Clara and Margaret fled. No matter what Margaret tries, her daughter refuses to give in, culminating in a painful confrontation wherein Margaret slaps Clara across the face. Clara erupts with a torrent of feeling centered on Fabrizio and the nature of love. This causes Margaret to relent, to set aside her doubts and considerations, and to no longer stand in the way of the wedding. The two return to Florence. Clara is instructed in the Latin Catechism in preparation for converting to Catholicism, while around her, everyone in the extended family sings of their feelings, stirred up by the immediate presence of such intense young love. Franca, in an attempt to arouse her husband's jealousy, kisses Fabrizio right on the mouth, and Clara witnesses it, breaking into a furious rant that ends with her throwing a drink on Franca. As Clara breaks down, Franca commends her for her bravery and declares her own desire to fight for Giuseppe. She toasts the upcoming union and is joined by the rest of the family. At the wedding rehearsal, Clara and Fabrizio are filling out the necessary forms when Signor Naccarelli sees something on Clara's form that causes him to call off the wedding and take his family away at once. Clara wants to know what is wrong with her, but her mother says there is nothing at all wrong. With Clara sobbing and broken, alone in one of the pews of the church, Margaret reveals her worst fears and her shame at having been the source of her daughter's lifelong suffering. She resolves to do whatever it takes to give Clara a chance for happiness. Margaret tries to reason with Signor Naccarelli 
who saw Clara's childlike handwriting as she completed her marriage form. Seemingly unconcerned with her immaturity or her handwriting, Signor Naccarelli admits that he saw Clara write her age on the forms, 26, and that this makes her an unsuitable bride for his son, who is only 20. Relieved that he has not discovered their secret, Margaret begs him to change his mind, but he will not. She invites him to take a walk with her, and the two wander from one end of Florence to the other as the sun slowly sets and the night comes on. By giving him time to mull things over and not pressuring him, Margaret succeeds in putting the wedding back on track. Signor Naccarelli says he will meet them at the church the following morning. From the hotel room, Margaret calls Roy to tell him about the wedding. As might be predicted, he insists that Clara cannot handle the responsibilities of marriage. Clara, in her wedding dress, stands in the shadows, overhearing her mother's side of the conversation. Margaret says, just because she isn't normal, Roy, doesn't mean she's consigned to a life of loneliness. She mustn't be made to accept less from life just because she isn't like you or me. Shattered. Clara slips out of the hotel room and runs once more through Florence, meeting Fabrizio at the church in order to tell him that she cannot marry him. She won't allow herself to cause him any pain. Fabrizio assuages all of her fears. Moments before the wedding, Clara tells Margaret that she can't leave her. Margaret assures her that she can. Left alone, Margaret breaks open all the repressed doubts and yearnings that she has carried for years on end about love, realizing at last that the chance of love somehow outweighs the terrible risks. She rejoins the wedding ceremony. Okay. So, you know, um, let's just dive right in here and address the book. In our rundown notes, I equated this to like a Hallmark movie musical. And as we were sitting here reading this script aloud and running through it, that actually feels too generous oh incredibly so i think it's a lot more like a soap opera than a hallmark movie because the core drama and conflict centers from the fact that clara was kicked in the head by a shetland pony as a child and this deep dark secret has clouded the rest of the family's events in life. And can we talk about, and maybe even just ever so slightly appreciate, how amazingly specific that was. She was kicked in the head as a child, specifically by a Shetland pony. You could have said pony. You could have said horse. You could have said animal. Like, I don't know... Like, I don't know that you could have said animal. Wait, okay. she was kicked in the head by a duck? <laughs> okay, 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 okay. No, you're, oh, you're right. There is, there is a thing of the pendulum swinging the other way and it becoming so generic that it doesn't work as well. But, like, it's a weird sense of specificity. Now, Adam Gettle is, for those of you who are not aware, is kind of 
hereditary nobility of Broadway. So he is the son of Mary Rogers, who herself was the daughter of Richard Rogers, which makes Adam Gettle the grandson of Richard Rogers, who top of the pyramid. I mean, again, we've talked about many times Richard Rogers is the person. Like he is, he is, he is a top of the heap for us. And there's a lot of talent there. Adam Gettle as a composer can write a tune. Like the music in this show is beautiful, but kind of like last week when we were talking about on the town and the dichotomy between the music and the book, it's even a little bit more of a stark contrast here. This music is absolutely beautiful. Like I said, and this book, Ooh, um, this book has people getting kicked in the head by Shetland ponies. Also, one small correction there, John. Last week's episode was about West Side Story. Anyway, continue. <laughs> um, well, and here's the thing: is that the confusion, the acrimony, the storm and drawing of the story, its its pinnacle is when Margaret finally admits to Signor Naccarelli what happened and his response is, oh yeah, I don't care about that. She's old. Wait, does does she actually admit it though? Or, or does she just go to confront him about it? But before she can, he is like, oh yeah, I mean, she's 26. You this know what? spinster can't marry my son. I think you're right. Like, and that, I mean, I don't know if this is misogynistic or ageist or like, but it's like, so, okay, yeah, your your daughter may have weird handwriting and she might be acting immature at times, but she's 26, which is way too old for my son that like that, but like. Really? There's a lot of problems. There's a lot of problems. And look, we don't need to uh, beat a dead Shetland pony here. Let's get to the part that we do like about the show, which is the fact that, as you said, the music is really good. It From the very first note, from the opening of the show, I mean, it is this wildly lush, romantic, chromatic just stunning music but to me that's a little bit of the problem um we were talking about in our rundown and i made this comment and i'm going to make it on in the recording too and, and and i will fully admit this came from me and john can agree or disagree with me as much as i love the music from this show the music for this show strikes me as someone who intellectually knows what a musical is, has read about a musical, but never actually seen a musical. And then they go ahead and write a musical. It doesn't fit with the aesthetic of the time. So this came out in 2005. 
Um, so we're right in the middle of the aughts and and kind of the kind of resurgence of of, of bubblegum pop and you know the it, that style on Broadway does not fit into that. But even beyond that, you want to open it out into the mega musical and even the golden age. This show doesn't fit any of those categories either. This show is. And originally when I was talking in the rundown, I said, this is the show if if Verdi or Puccini had been tasked with writing a musical, to which John fairly responded, well, you know, maybe that's a little bit of hyperbole. This is like, what if Jacques Offenbach had written a musical? And it's beautiful, but does it really work stylistically? Yeah, no, I think your point is absolutely right. It does not sound like any other musical from the aughts or really before or really since. It's pretty unique in its musical stylings. It's really good. It's really good music. Offenbach, no slouch of a composer, wrote some wonderful music. And I'm sure if he were alive in the 2000s and writing musicals, they would have been absolutely beautiful. But... It is curious because this is not a show that to my knowledge has been revived in on Broadway. There have been productions since, but it's not very frequently done. It's been done by some opera houses. It's been done here in Winston-Salem. Um, but it just falls in this funny place because the music doesn't quite work for theater folks and it doesn't quite work for opera folks. It's just, it, it, it doesn't have a home. For me, it it's funny because you, you talk about there not being a comparable show. I don't know how familiar you are with the show Big Fish. The music for Big Fish actually strikes me in a way similarly to this show does, but maybe not as rigidly. Whereas this show from the first note to the last note, while beautiful, doesn't fit into the aesthetic. Big Fish is a show that there are moments where it's like, oh, yeah, okay, this is a Broadway musical. I get it. Um, But there are also then moments where it's it's almost like this symphonic sweeping gesture. And and it's like, okay, now we're wandering a little bit off. So that's almost kind of like the median there. so there's a little bit of analysis to me, but I mean, one show does not prove connection. One show is, okay, now we have two that don't fit the mold, but the mold is still blah. Um, I just, I'm, I'm of, of two minds of this because the music for this show is, as we said, brilliant. I like Adam Gettle's music. And it, if you're listen, looking for another show of his to listen to, you've got Myths and Hymns, you've got Floyd Collins, both of which in their own rights are also fantastic shows. But I just, I don't want to advocate for composers or writers on Broadway to fit into this idea that Broadway is this cookie cutter commercial enterprise because it's because it's not some of the shows that we hold most dear to our hearts break those molds but they're at least within sighting distance aesthetically of Broadway Light in the Piazza as much as I love the music is so outside of the sphere of the Broadway aesthetic that it just 
I have a hard time justifying it. Yeah, it's curious, you know, you, just thinking about this now as we're recording, but, you know, we mentioned that uh, Adam Gettle is the grandson of Richard Rogers, And for this show, he wrote both the music and the lyrics. And I'm wondering if maybe much like his grandfather, he wouldn't benefit from having a partner who wrote lyrics for him so he could focus on music. And then maybe we would come up with a story that was good. Okay. So is there anything else that you want to bring to the table on this one, John? No, I don't think so. I think uh, just uh, if you haven't listened to this piece, you absolutely should. It's really good. There is a recording available. So go find it. Well, that should just about do it for this episode. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can drop us a line at musicalminutespodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook at Musical Minutes with John and John or on Twitter at Musical Mins Pod. That's Musical M-I-N-S Pod. Intro and outro music, Bebop 25, is provided under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License by Jason Shaw on Audionautics.com. Thank you for joining us. I'm John. And I'm John. And we'll see you next time.